Robots Radio presents... In 1975, director Milos Forman and star Jack Nicholson rioted their ways through American theaters with this psych ward drama. In 2020, we try a fan-favorite bourbon at cask strength. The film is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. The whiskey is Knob Creek Single Barrel. And we'll review them both. This is... The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1975 classic, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Jesus, I mean, you guys do nothing but complain about how you can't stand it in this place here, and then you haven't got the guts just to walk out? I mean, what do you think you are, for Christ's sake, crazy or something? Mm-hmm. Well, you're not. <laughs> you're not. Brad, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this movie. This is an all-timer, really. I mean, it won Best Picture. It was one of the only three films in history to win what's called the Big Five at the Academy Awards. That's Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Screenplay. It's regarded as one of the greatest American films of all time. I think it's like number 18 or 19 on the IMDb Top 250. So it's popular with audiences and critics alike. But the real question here is, Brad... Had you ever seen this movie prior to watching it for our podcast? Robert, I have never seen the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Like you still haven't seen it or you just haven't seen it up to now? Oh, yeah. No, I'm just going to do this review blind. I fi- I figured you're basically I'm, just giving your opinion based off the like the DVD cover, right? I'm also going to like plug my nose and like rinse my mouth out with mouthwash right before I taste the whiskey. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Yeah, that's the way to go. Yeah. As, You've learned a lot in the last year as, of doing this as podcast. As blind a review as I can give. <laughs> okay, so you hadn't seen this movie before. And, you know, for people who may be turning in for their first time to our podcast, the the conceit of our podcast is that I grew up as a huge movie nerd. Brad, one of my best friends, has seen a ton of movies, but he hasn't seen a lot of the movies that are on this list I put together of films I think everyone should see. And so we're working our way through this list. Some movies Brad has seen before, some he hasn't. And so this is one of those films that Brad is coming to for the first time. And I'm anxious to hear what you thought of this movie, Brad. Yeah, I mean, any more with the amount of varied reactions I've given you with movies, I just like keeping you on your toes. It's a blast. And you really do. So it seems like you're kind of keeping me in suspense here on your initial thoughts with the movie, too. So maybe the best way to go is to just hold off on any evaluation, any review of the movie for now, and jump right into our favorite segment, which is called Brad Explains. This is where Brad walks us through the plot of the movie, and there is a spoiler alert. I mean, we're going to spoil the whole thing, so if you haven't seen this 45-year-old movie, now would be the time to hit pause and come back after you've seen the movie. But Brad, can you break down the plot of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is a story about a younger man, probably in his mid-30s or so, who is in a bit of trouble with the law, and they send him to the psych ward to evaluate whether or not he is crazy, insane, has, you know, mental, psychological issues. And the the entire movie is about his interactions with the longer-term patients of this ward, how they interact with their primary caregiver, a woman named Nurse Ratchet, 
And it follows his ability to be a rabble rouser, to be a leader, uh, basically to try to shake up life on this ward. And we get to see opportunities of relationship and how Jack Nicholson is able to build up these people's confidence in the psych ward. Uh, and it ends pretty, pretty crazily. Um, by the end of it, he becomes very angry with Nurse Ratchet for reasons that we will talk about. And he tries to kill her. Uh, after he tries to kill her, they give him a lobotomy. And that's that. His best friend on the ward is a guy named Big Chief. And he smothers him with a pillow and breaks out and runs off into the darkness. And that is the story of One Flew Over Coo's Nest. It sure is. And Brad, I think now's the time. I, I want to hear your initial thoughts on the movie. Like, did you think it was a good movie? Were you on board for it? This is the second movie we've watched now by director Milos Forman. Um, maybe some comparisons to this movie or Amadeus, which you liked better. I, I love to hear whatever you want to get out here in the open at the top of the episode. Take it away, sir. Yeah, this movie was interesting for me, partially because I know how famous it is. You know, I know it's a really big movie. I know it has an 8.7 on IMDb. I know it has a lot of historical value in cinema. And so coming into it, I, I was just curious. I was really excited to watch it. This might sound really bad, but my wife and I have been recently watching through the TV show House. And spoiler alert for that, but they start one of the seasons of House with the main character, Gregory House in a psych ward. And we were literally like five minutes into this movie. And I was like, oh, they based like all two or three episodes of that show off of one flew over the cuckoo's nest. So there was like that part of me that immediately I was like, oh, this is like this is a landmark piece of cinema that has affected things. I think those episodes were filmed in like 2010 or 11. So getting into the movie, I, I really enjoyed it, but it starts slow. Um, it's not really until halfway through the movie where you really kind of get the ball rolling. So I kind of struggle with it at the start. But in the end, Bob, this is a fascinating movie. It's gripping. It draws you into the characters. You really fall in love with all the oddities of each individual person. I mean, it's an all-star cast. You you look at all of the people in this movie that go on to be something big or already were something big, and you just kind of go, wow, how did they get all of these people in this movie? So overall, I, this is a great movie, man. I, I was very impressed, even despite the slow start that it kind of had for me. Yeah, Brad, I think I first saw this movie when I was in high school. So let's, I, I don't know. Let's just say I was 16 when I first saw it. And I've probably only sat down and watched it all the way through maybe another three times since then. It's been a long time since I've seen this movie. And I, I do agree with you. I think that this movie does have some pacing issues. I actually didn't struggle with the beginning of the movie. I thought they moved that along pretty, uh, pretty quickly and pretty well. But some of the sequences in this movie, it really does seem like they drag them on past the point where they're like actually serving a purpose in the movie. Like, I'm thinking in particular about the, the scene where they steal the boat, which is a really great moment in the movie. And it, it, it says a lot about, I think, some of the deeper themes of the movie about, you know, kind of giving these guys a, a, a hint of freedom. But that sequence goes on forever. And then towards the end of the movie, when Nicholson sneaks in two women onto the ward and they basically have like a bacchanal on, on the uh, psych ward. Like that sequence goes on for probably 20 minutes. It's a really, really extended sequence. And I think some of the, the pacing issues in this movie, they affect the rest of the movie negatively for me, because especially at the end of the film, I felt like that sequence of them having the big party 
lasted too long. And then everything that happens as a result, the sort of tragic ending of the movie, the fallout from that party, that all seemed kind of rushed to me. And it it almost seemed like they they like checked their watches and said, okay, we got to wrap this thing up because everything happens so quickly after that. And in a lot of ways, I didn't feel like the end of the movie landed emotionally as well as it could have because it felt like they were trying to rush everything to get to the finish line. I don't know if you had that same reaction, but it definitely hit me that way this time. Yeah. And honestly, like when you think about the reality of life, when you spend time in a drunken stupor at a party, you know, acting crazy, that's the time that goes really fast and you don't remember very well. It's the fallout of your bad decisions in that time that feels like it drags on and on and on. And so it, Mm. It feels like it would have mimicked real life more fully if the party scene had gone by somewhat quickly and then the fallout is what really dragged. And and I think that's an area where, you know, Milos Forman maybe missed a pacing beat that he could have nailed. Yeah. And I think at the same time, like I read a lot of reviews from the movie that, that came out when the movie was released and then also kind of like retrospectives on the film. And this word comedy kept coming up over and over how this movie is essentially a comedy. And I don't know if I would go that far. I mean, I do think that there are some sequences that are purposely played for laughs and they are written as comedic sequences. I think if you really wanted to get technical about it, it's almost like a comedy with a tragic ending. But I found that sometimes they leaned too heavily into the sort of like slapstick comedy elements, especially like on the boat with the fishing and the boat going in circles. And I almost had whiplash because it's like it goes from a moment of comedy to like then you get the fallout and it's a really dramatic fallout. Like when when Nicholson gets kind of brought back in after he steals the boat or when they get in a fight on the psych ward and then Nicholson gets shock treatment. It it goes from one extreme to the other really quickly. And I think that's intentional because it kind of shows you how drastic some of the measures that are being taken are on this uh, on this psych ward. But I don't know if it really serves the movie really well because the you know the final thing we get in the movie is is this really sort of tragic ending. And I don't want to say that it like rings false or rings hollow, but there's been so many like lighthearted moments in the movie that it almost seems a little cheap, a little manipulative to me the way they end it. I don't I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, it it does make sense. For me, I thought that the comedy actually it strengthened the critique of the psychological institution by showing how ridiculous they are treating the inmates who are just enjoying themselves. Yeah. So yeah. for me, I, I didn't really mind the comedic elements of it, even on the boat scene. You know, I, I was, you know, it was highly amusing the way the boat's going around in circles and, you know, Nicholson is trying to keep the fishing line in the right place to catch this fish and you know then they pull up to the dock and there's all these sour looking police officers and doctors and nurses and you just see these smiling giggling laughing psych ward patients holding up this giant fish that they caught for me i actually really enjoyed the comedic elements and i think that they heightened the difference that you see between them and the you know the villain of the movie nurse ratchet One of the things I love about our podcast, Brad, is that in a lot of instances, you're watching a movie for the first time and I'm watching it for like, I don't know, like the 10th time. And for me, I I sit down to watch these movies and I'm like, oh, yeah, this movie is definitely top 50 of all time or whatever. And then I'm watching it with a more critical lens and I'm watching it as like, okay, if I was going back and watching it for the first time, what would I think? 
And in a lot of cases, I think that my opinion on movies kind of changes a little bit when I'm watching it for the podcast. And this is one of those movies because I wonder how much the initial kind of shock value of seeing that ending for the first time affects the way you you think about this movie. You know what I mean? Like if if knowing what's coming on a rewatch, if that kind of taints things for me or if that, you know what I mean? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of the argument people often use about the sixth sense that, you know, if you once you know the spoiler, oh, well, it's it's not much of a movie and it's just about the spoiler. And I think that they are wrong in that instance. But I would agree with you, you know, five, six years from now, if I ever go back and watch this movie again, I might view the movie differently knowing what happens at the end of it. Yeah, for sure. But again, I don't think that takes away from the great things that do happen in the movie. And I do think this is a great movie. So maybe we should kind of walk through the movie as it progresses and and kind of talk about the characters as they get introduced. I think that the character of McMurphy, Jack Nicholson's character, is a really complicated character to talk about because the whole conceit of like why he's in the institution is because he's in jail for statutory rape, which is like a really weird thing to base your like your hero around. I was not a big fan of that. No, I wasn't either. (laughs) And I do I, I do appreciate that, like they're not pulling any punches and they're not trying to convince you that he's actually a good person. Like he's kind of an anti-hero. And I think throughout the whole movie too, he's just kind of an a-hole. Like he's a jerk for a good portion of the movie to everyone on the ward with him until he really kind of realizes what nurse ratchet is doing psychologically to them. And I think he does have a good heart in some moments, but Jack Nicholson plays him so, so well because he does that sort of smarmy smirking Jack Nicholson arrogant butthole like thing that Jack Nicholson does. And it's like, it's so infuriating. And you know that like, if you were in the position of nurse ratchet, you would absolutely hate this guy, but he plays it so well. Yeah. Honestly, as I went throughout this movie for the first, like probably hour of the movie, you kind of go back and forth and you kind of wonder, man, is nurse ratchet actually that bad? Or is she genuinely trying to create a structured system for these, you know, tortured people's minds so that they don't have to deal with the randomness and craziness and suffering of real life. And so you kind of start wondering, you know, is she actually helping these patients more than Jack Nicholson is? And I honestly kind of felt like they were setting it up so that eventually Jack Nicholson's pranks and craziness would kill one of the patients, which... In in a sense, it kind of does. It kind of does, yeah. yeah. And so you, you start to wonder, like, is Nurse Ratched really the bad person here? Now, obviously, by the end of the movie, you, you realize that she is, you know, and you texted me this earlier, but, like, she's really one of the greatest villains of all time. Absolutely. Nurse Ratched, look, look, the chief put his hand up. The chief put his hand up. Look, he voted. Would you please turn the, would you please turn the television set on? The chief has got his hand up right there. Chief voted. Now, will you please turn the television set on? Mr. McMurphy, the meeting was adjourned and the vote was closed. The vote was 10 to 8. The chief, he's got his hand up. Look. No, Mr. McMurphy. When the meeting was adjourned, the vote was 9 to 9. Ah, oh, come on. You're not going to say that now. You're not going to say that now. You're going to pull that hand out shit now. When the vote, the chief just voted, it was 10 to 9. Now, I want that television set turned on right now. She's terrifying. But as far as Jack Nicholson goes, honestly, I as we finished as I finished watching this movie last night, 
I realized that this movie spawned an entire decade's worth of character type. Like when I think about 80s movies, you think about the classics like The Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And in all reality, those the title, you know, the title characters in those movies are based off of McMurphy in this movie. You know, he's a rabble rouser that enters into a situation and causes trouble. You know, whether it's funny, whether it's abusive, they come in and they cause this trouble in order to have a good time. And and so I got done with this movie and I was like, man, like you could see half of 80s cinema built off of this one character. Yeah. And the thing that's really interesting to me is that, like you said, as the movie progresses, you you come to understand that Nurse Ratched, she thinks she's helping people, but she really is also at the same time very manipulative and is is psychologically dominating these people into submission. And so as the movie progresses, you start to see her true colors in the same way you start to kind of see McMurphy's true colors. Like he is a rabble rouser and he does hate authority and he is a screw up, but he also really deeply cares for the people on the ward and he doesn't want to see them be dominated by her the way she's doing. And yet at the same time, like at the same time that we're getting these sort of polar opposite personalities, I think they both Nurse Ratchet and McMurphy both kind of have the same sort of tragic flaw, which is that they go kind of all in on their own method of rehabilitation or therapy. Like Nurse Ratchet thinks that by keeping everything in order and keeping everything super structured and not allowing them to have any say or any freedom that she's helping them. But it's pretty clear that her therapy sessions, even before McMurphy comes into them, are not working and that she's not they're not actually progressing with her. But at the same time, it's good that McMurphy kind of introduces them to something they need in that sort of freedom, like on the boat scene. But I think his big mistake is thinking that he can actually keep going to the next level with these things. He treats them the way that he would treat, you know, all of his sleazy friends on the outside of the mental institution. And it really introduces chaos into the scene. And so I think they both have the same sort of flaw. And that's why they play off of each other so well is deep down. Even though the, it manifests in different ways, they, they're kind of the same. Yeah, I, I think that this is an example of a movie where there's not much of a character arc for the protagonist or the antagonist. If anything, they both are just so stubborn in their way of thinking that this movie is a movie about escalation. And it's a movie about how one person is stubborn and kind of one-ups the other. And so the other one cracks down on the other and they keep just biting back and forth at each other until two people die by the end of the movie. Absolutely. And I think that like I'm not sure if that helps or hurts kind of like the overarching theme of the movie. Cuz I think in a lot of ways this movie is a critique of, you know, two clashing ideals, but it's also a critique of like what we were doing with people in mental institutions at this time. Like it, it's it's unflinching in the way that it shows how somebody like a nurse ratchet can can dehumanize people in the name of good medicine or good science. But at the same time, it's kind of like you can't really pin it all on her, even though she is really evil, because McMurphy is is truly bringing some of this stuff on himself. He just he never learns his lesson. And it seems like the second half of the movie is like this constant cycle of him doing something stupid, getting punished for it not learning his lesson, doing something stupid again with increasingly bad results. Like you would think after he gets shock therapy 
and then finds out you're not getting out of here in 68 days like this. It, it doesn't work like jail that he would finally sort of just, you know, do what they ask him to do and, and get get out on good behavior. But he doesn't like there's just something innate in him that pushes back against authority. And it's a tragic flaw. Yeah. And and the big thing is he continues to escalate even when it isn't just costing him. You know, I, I think that when he finds out that he's going to get electroshock therapy and when he is told that, no, you don't just get out of here when you want to at the end of 68 days, you get out of here when we say that you can get out of here. Those things cost him something. And so he never really cares about what the cost is to himself. And the problem is, as he escalates this war between him and Nurse Ratched, it begins to cost other people on the ward more and more and more. And I think that's where we see the fatal character flaw for Nicholson's character is the fact that even then he doesn't seem to care. And if anything, it causes him to retaliate even harder which causes more and more problems for the people on the ward. So it just it's just, he's just not a good person and he doesn't care about what others think or about the cost that, you know, his actions have for others to pay. I will say that I think that the script and and Foreman's direction really set this up well though because I think you kind of get this sense as the movie goes on that this is not going to end well for him. And it's not be, it's not just because Nurse Ratchet is mean and vindictive, which she is. But it's also because you realize that, like, he's just never going to learn and he's just never going to change. And Foreman does this really, really great thing with every time they go back to one of these group therapy sessions, it almost always starts with a shot of that record player playing that classical music again. And I, I realized that it builds this really foreboding sense of dread. It's almost like we go from a funny scene or an uplifting or an inspiring scene, and then he drags you back down into, oh, yeah, but this is going to get bad again. Because you know, during those therapy sessions, someone's going to blow up on somebody, and Nurse Ratchet is going to leverage what she knows about these guys' personal lives into basically making them have mental breakdowns so that she can continue to have dominance over them. And the more and more those things come up, it almost reminds me of like how they build tension in a horror movie. It's really quiet, but it's it's this sense of dread that creeps up. Yeah. And I'm I'm kind of curious, Bob. We we haven't talked about anybody other than Jack Nicholson and Louise Fletcher, you know, who plays Nurse Ratched. I'd like to hear what you have to think about all of the supporting characters in this movie, because there's a lot of them and a lot of them are pretty famous names. Absolutely. I mean, Brad Dourif, who plays Billy, was nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. And I absolutely agree with that nomination. His his character doesn't really get a big scene until right at the end of the film. And, you know, again, spoiler alert, but he commits suicide. But that breakdown that he has where Nurse Ratched is is getting in his head about, you know, I have to tell your mother about this, about the fact that you slept with this woman. And he starts hitting himself in the face and, and just screaming, no, no, no. Miss Ra Ratchet, please, please don't tell me. Mr. Warren? My mother, please. Would you see that the men are washed and ready for the day? Miss Ratchet, please, please, please don't, don't tell my mother. Mr. Washington, yeah. put Billy in Dr. No, Scobie's no. office. No, 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 no. Stay with him till no, the doctor arrives. No, 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 no. no. Move it. Come on, Ross. Get on. No. Yeah. 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 
it's a really powerful scene. And for me, it actually is probably the most emotionally powerful scene in the movie, even more than McMurphy's death at the end of the film. So I would say, first and foremost, I think Brad Dourif knocks it out of the park. Yeah, that scene is so brutal because of one simple thing. You see, you know, Billy Bobbitt finally speak clearly. And he only says like four or five words before he descends back into, you know, the stuttering gibberish way of talking. But he says those few words with confidence and calmness. And it gives you this sense of hope as a viewer of like, man, like Billy has made it like. Well, and I think it's important that we acknowledge too what the words are that he says, because when he gets that confidence is when she's asking him, aren't you ashamed of what you did? And he just stands up tall and says, no, I'm not. And it's the first time in the whole movie that he doesn't stutter. And you just know that she's going to crush his dreams after he says that, too. And that's what makes it so heartbreaking. Um, I can explain everything. Please do. Explain everything. Er, er, Everything? (laughs) Aren't you ashamed? No, I'm not. You know, Billy, what worries me is how your mother is going to take this. Yeah, and I think that the hard part about that is that you see Jack Nicholson, you know, waging a war with Nurse Ratched on how do we help these men get better? And in that moment, you think to yourself, man, Jack Nicholson won. Like his way of chaotically loving these inmates has finally worked. Billy is, you know, on his way up to psychological health. And then you just get this brutal lockdown of authority from Nurse Ratched that just destroys all hope. And it's such a brutal beatdown of Billy's, you know, hopes and dreams and confidence that he immediately goes off and kills himself. And that that is just it's one of the hardest turns I have ever seen in a movie. Yeah, for sure. But again, I think that, like you were saying, Brad, the ensemble of of the people on this ward is just phenomenal. I mean, you've got Danny DeVito playing the character of Martini. You've got Christopher Lloyd uh, playing Tabor. I thought that the guy that played Harding, the sort of intellectual one who who was suspecting his wife of cheating on him, I thought he was great. I thought Cheswick was great. Did any of them in particular stand out to you, Brad? I really love Charlie Cheswick in that movie, you know, played by Sidney Lassick. I I thought that he just had a way of communicating with McMurphy that was just so honest and and he kind of evoked the feelings of a child just looking to be loved and cared for. He wanted to be on the winning team and he was just so convincing in that performance. But honestly, my favorite performance from the people that you just mentioned probably was from Christopher Lloyd. He, he's just so fun and interesting, and he's always observant over everything. I I really enjoyed Christopher Lloyd in this movie. And then I think the last person, Brad, that we should talk about is Will Sampson, who plays Chief. This is actually a a harder role than I think people give it credit for, because he has to communicate a lot in silence. You know, the first probably two thirds of the movie, he doesn't say anything. And everyone in the film thinks that he's deaf and that he's mute. And it's a really great reveal when him and Nicholson are kind of sitting out in the hall waiting to get shock treatment that 
he just he's like ah juicy fruit and that's like his first line and it's it's a great punchline but from there on out he kind of becomes the emotional core of the movie and he's the last character on screen he's the last character that has a line of dialogue and i think that he just does a great job in this role as this kind of stoic figure who's watching over everything that's happening around him they give him a, a couple great character touches where he's talking about how he sees that they're doing the same thing to Nicholson that they did to his dad, basically, that all the people around him are driving him to these self-destructive tendencies. And I think that's one of the first moments in the movie where you start to understand that Nicholson is on a path where it's not going to end well for him. But it also really helps develop that character of Chief. I'm wondering what you thought of him in this movie. I think that Chief is a beautiful character because while with Billy Bobbitt, you see Nicholson's influence pretty suddenly at the end that he becomes this man and stands up for himself. I think that you see Chief slowly warm up to Nicholson and care for him. And so when Nicholson finally gets him to say juicy fruit and realize that he's just putting it all on, it's almost like this this slow burning small victory that just like you said it's the emotional heartbeat of the movie is the fact that Nicholson is able to connect with Chief and so his performance is amazing but I will say the ending of the movie is hard for me you move from Chief smothering Nicholson after he has his lobotomy and then he picks up the, you know, the drinking fountain, whatever, you know, whatever it is, this giant piece of, of stone. He throws it out the window and he just kind of runs off into the woods. And for some reason, that ending was a struggle for me. I Like, I guess he was doing it in honor of, you know, McMurphy and the chaos that he kind of brought to the ward. But it just felt like a weirdly uplifting moment that happens seconds after he killed Jack Nicholson, who just had a lobotomy. It it just felt awkward at the very end. Well, yeah, that's that's the thing that I don't like about the ending in this movie is that it seems like it's an ending for the audience more than the characters in the movie, because you get the sense that he he looks at this lobotomized Jack Nicholson and he's like, I'm not going to let this place basically get the best of you and you're going with me. And so at first you're thinking, like, what's he going to carry him on his shoulder? But it becomes very clear that he, what he's saying is like, I'm going to carry the spirit of what you were talking about with me. And so he smothers Nicholson. He decides to honor him by throwing that fountain through the window the way that Nicholson said he would. And the patients all wake up and Christopher Lloyd starts cheering. And it's this uplifting moment because I think in that moment, for all they know, you know, they don't know what happened to McMurphy. And they're watching this thing go through the window. And I think they're they're thinking like McMurphy did it or, you know. At the very least, the spirit of McMurphy lives on and they're watching Chief run away and it's this triumphant moment. But then, like, if you really think about what's going to happen after that, they're all going to wake up in the morning and they're going to see that McMurphy is dead in his bed and got a lobotomy. So it's kind of like it's triumphant for the audience, but it's only triumphant because we don't actually have to see the aftermath of what happens. It's kind of a downer of an ending, really, for all those patients that are still in the ward. Yeah, I I 100% agree with you, Bob, and and I think we need to talk more about this. But for now, I think we also should live in the spirit of McMurphy because I believe he would also enjoy this Knob Creek single barrel barrel proof. Well, let's get to it, Brad. Thank you.
All right, so today we are checking out Knob Creek Single Barrel Select. This is a barrel-proof expression of Knob Creek. Uh, Brad, have you ever had the regular expressions of Knob Creek before? I think their bourbon is phenomenal. You know, I know that at some point I have had Knob Creek, but it's been a really long time, and I can't remember how I feel about it. One of the great things about Knob Creek, just their regular bourbon, is that it the, the lowest proof you can get is, is bottled and bond. It's 100 proof. And it's one of the few bottled and bonds that I would recommend to almost anybody. I think that 100 proof sometimes can be a little too harsh for some people. But for some reason, Knob Creek is just turning out an incredible product. And what we have here today is actually a bottle that I picked up when we were in Kentucky and we interviewed Justin Sloan at Justin's House of Bourbon. Justin's House of Bourbon. Whoa, 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 whoa. If you're in Lexington or you're in Louisville, check out Justin's House of Bourbon. They are just incredible stores. But Justin had just gotten this shipment in of their Knob Creek barrel pick. They went to the distillery and picked out a single barrel. Uh, so this is actually a 15-year Knob Creek selection. It was put in the barrel in January of 2004. It was taken out January of 2019. This bad boy clocks in at 120 proof, so it is a barrel-proof whiskey. I'm really excited to try it, Brad. Uh, it's very rare that we have a bourbon that's aged this long on the show. Yeah, this is a heck of a bourbon. I mean, 15 years, that's when you're starting to get into the good scotches, let alone bourbon. I mean, most bourbons that are aged for a long time, you might see an age statement of 8, 9, 10 years, not 15. Yeah, and I think that that's going to be interesting as we get into our tasting of this, because a lot of people will swear up and down that you shouldn't age a bourbon past like 12 years at the most. You know, some, there's some obviously that go way past that. All of the pappy expressions, there's, there's a 15, a 20, a 23. Uh, Elijah Craig does an 18 year. But we're kind of in that range here with 15 that you don't see a lot of people putting out a 15 year bourbon. The only other one that I can really think of is the Pappy Van Winkle 15. So this is going to be a unique experience. I'm kind of expecting this to have a little bit of a funk to it. Um, maybe not be as sweet because there is just so much oak that's going to be in this. But I think it's time to get to it, Brad. What are you picking up on the nose of this Knob Creek? Honestly, this smells kind of nutty to me. Uh, maybe not like a hazelnut, but but there's something nutty about this. Um, I'm getting a lot of oak. It's very deep. Um, yeah. It's a really interesting nose. Yeah. And yet at the same time, like it's not incredibly strong. It's kind of an unexceptional nose. I, I expected to be picking up a lot more than I am. I think you're right, Brad. It's it's mostly just for me, ethanol and oak. And for something that's been sitting in the barrel this long, I thought it would have a lot more layers, a lot more complexity to the nose. But it's kind of just like a one note smell. Yeah, it's it's interesting, but like you said, it's mostly oak. I am getting a few nuts on it, but I'm going to go ahead and give it a six and a half out of ten. I, I'm curious about what's to come, but it hasn't blown me away yet. Yeah, I'm in the same spot, Brad. And, you know, I, I have tried this whiskey before. We sat down and tried it with Justin at the store. And I will say, you know, it, it was months and months ago that I tried it. I'm wondering if the sort of mellowing process of having this bottle open for the last eight months has affected this whiskey, because I don't remember it being this sort of simplistic on the nose. I'm going to give it a five and a half for now. Hopefully it kind of opens up a little bit once we take a sip. Huh, that's a little bit spicy. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so it's it's sweet up front, like on the tip of my tongue, it's sweet. It doesn't have like a uh, 
a specific kind of flavor to it. It just tastes like that general corn sweetness. Yeah, it's not it's not vanilla or caramely. It's no. just kind of sweet. The finish is really long. The finish is really oaky. I get a lot of tannin on the back end of the taste. And I'm getting a lot of, like right when I go to swallow, a lot of dark chocolate and a lot of black coffee. It's a really sort of like... I wouldn't call it bitter necessarily, but like those notes of of a really dark roast coffee are coming out to me. Yeah, that's an interesting comparison, Bob. I think that on the taste, I'm going to go ahead and give it a five. I, I'm not getting a lot on the front of my palate. All of the interesting elements of this whiskey are on the back end of the finish. Yeah, totally agree. There's some coffee notes. There's some spicy notes. Um, I don't know if they have any rye in this, but it, it seems like they might have a little bit. I think I'll just go ahead and give my finish as well. I, I think I'm going to give it an eight on the finish. It's really complex and interesting. Unfortunately, though, it's only at the end. Yeah. And I think that for me, I'm I'm kind of flip flopping because I think that the, the really good notes in the taste come out, like you said, towards the back end of the taste. But after I swallow is when it gets kind of unpleasant for me. So like. I get the really good notes of dark chocolate and black coffee. I'm going to give it a seven on the taste. But then after I swallow, it gets kind of bitter. And it has a lot of those kind of like tannin notes to it um, where you can tell it's just been aging in this barrel for a long time. It has those those really sort of bitter woody notes to it. It's it's a dry, lasting finish, um, which is kind of unpleasant to me. So I'm going to give it a five and a half on the finish. And that brings us to overall balance. This is where we compare nose, taste, and finish all together. Does anything stand out, you know, above or below the rest of it? Is there some sort of outlier? That'll affect the score. So, Brad, what do you think of the balance on this whiskey? Honestly, this is not a very well-balanced whiskey. I'm not getting the sweet notes at the front of the taste or the spicy notes on the finish in the nose. So like it switches from from nose to palate to finish. I'm only going to give it a three on balance. It, it really jumps around a lot. Wow. Yeah, I don't I don't know that it's necessarily poorly balanced as much as just I don't think this whiskey has a lot of defining characteristics to it. And I wish that I had taken better notes on it when I had sampled it at the House of Bourbon. I'm really wondering how these last sort of eight months of having the bottle open has affected it. But I can't imagine that it affected the taste and flavor that much. So this is, you know, this is where it gets kind of dicey with single barrel selections, because when when a store does a store pick, their representatives go in, they find what what they like on their palates, and that's the barrel that they pick. So if you go to your local liquor store and they have a Knob Creek single barrel, it might be a completely different flavor profile. This is something we talked about a lot when we did the Henry McKenna. You know, one barrel of Henry McKenna won the best whiskey in the world, but the barrel that you pick up on the shelf, it might taste completely differently and you might hate it. So for this particular barrel of Knob Creek, I don't think that it's particularly well balanced and it's kind of just not an exceptional whiskey. I'm going to give it a five and a half on balance. I like that you describe picking up a barrel at the store as if you could just go to the liquor liquor store and see that what massive I <laughs> barrel sitting on the shelf. Like, oh, I'll take that one. I, I want that. Let me have my giants grab that for me. 
<laughs> All right. And that brings us to overall value. Now, when we were at the House of Bourbon, I am fairly certain that they were selling this for $59.99 a bottle, which actually is not a bad price for a 15-year aged bourbon that is a single barrel selection that was handpicked by the people that work in that store. They are the only people on earth selling that barrel of whiskey and it's only sold in that store. I think that's really, really cool. And and just because we don't particularly like this specific barrel, I don't think that makes this a bad value. They are now selling at the House of Bourbon. They're selling a 14-year expression of this for $52.99. So let's just say we're splitting the difference, and this this bottle would run you about $55 on a, on a nationwide average. Brad, I think that's actually a really good value. Everybody who buys single barrels knows that they are kind of taking a risk because it can vary so much depending on where in the Rick house it was stored, depending on temperature fluctuations, things like that. But to have something that's this handpicked and hand selected and only available in one specific spot, it's it's about as unique as you can get in a whiskey buying experience. So I'm actually going to go ahead and give this an eight on value. Yeah, I'm I'm going to disagree with you there, Bob. I I think that in the end, exclusivity does not necessarily mean that price should go up. If the bottle isn't great, you know, and the juice inside isn't, you know, really tasty, then I don't want to spend $60 on it. You know, I do recognize the fact that this is exclusive and interesting and unique, but I wouldn't say that it's good. So I'm going to give this a five and a half on value. You know, it's hard to find... Uh, a bottle like this for fifty to sixty dollars, sure, but that doesn't necessarily make it good. So I'll put it right in the middle. Okay, so let me ask you this: I'm not going to argue with your score, but are you basically are you basing your score solely on this particular barrel of whiskey, or is it is it more on like we could have a really good bottle of this for the exact same price? Like, are you taking that in consideration at all, or is or is it just what's in front of you right now that's affecting the score? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it, it's kind of like playing the lottery a little bit. You don't know what you're going to get for $60, and I personally would rather go buy a bourbon that I know is going to be good, that I enjoy, rather than buying a lottery ticket for $60. Yeah, and I think that has a lot to do with our personal taste. I think Brad and I are both bigger fans of, like, small batch bourbons than we are single barrel, just because... Like you said, there's there's an element of risk involved with it. But I think even if you just take the small batch versus large batch versus single barrel out of the equation and you look just at the barrel proof part of it, it's really hard to find a barrel proof whiskey for less than $60. I mean, we've tried Elijah Craig. We've tried a couple others, um, and they're all basically in this price range. So I think adding the sort of hand selected element to what is already in the correct price range, I think actually makes this a pretty good value for me. Yeah. If the whiskey tasted better, I would give it a higher value score. All right. So that's bringing me out. <laughs> nah, I think it's fair, Brad. That's bringing me out to a 31 and a half out of 50. This is not an exceptional whiskey, but I, I appreciate what Justin's House of Bourbon was doing here. And again, I want to say thank you so much to Justin's House of Bourbon for providing us this bottle of whiskey you know, I, I popped it open with friends that I was staying with in Kentucky when I went down to do the interview, and it has it has made fans of a good many people in its short life. So thank you again, Justin's House of Bourbon. Yeah, and it's funny, Bob. We we've been quibbling over you know value score, but in the end, I came out only two and a half points off of you. I, I'm at a 29 out of 50, and let this far be away from the fact that Justin Sloan is an amazing guy. 
If you are in Kentucky, let alone the Lexington area, go check out Justin's House of Bourbon. If you care anything at all about the history of bourbon, about tasting and trying good quality bourbons, go check them out. It is a great place to be. That's bringing our average out to a 30.25 or a 60.5 out of 100. Again, not a great bourbon, but if if this is what you're in the market for, a single barrel, then you really can't do a lot better, in my opinion, of finding that sort of hand-selected, barrel-proof, single-barrel expression for this price point. So it really just depends on what you're looking for. Uh, Brad, would you recommend this whiskey? No. Okay. You know, I don't think I would recommend the whiskey in this bottle either, but if you're willing to take the risk on a different single barrel selection from a different store or even from a different barrel that the House of Bourbon picked, I do think this is the price point to do it at. If they were selling this for like 70 or $75, I'd say absolutely not. But I think they are pricing this really honestly and really fairly. So if you're willing to take the risk, then yes, I would recommend it. For the everyday consumer, probably not. And in the end, I think that's all that needs to be said. But Bob, I'm really excited to get back into One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with you. Let's do it, Brad. So that was Knob Creek Single Barrel Select, uh, a whiskey that we were kind of divided on. But it sounds like we're both fans of this movie. And Brad, I'm going to bring us back to a segment that we haven't done for a couple weeks. I'm talking about hot takes. Hot takes. This is the segment where we find one star reviews of this film on IMDb. And Brad, I think I have hit the mother load on, uh, on hot takes this week. This kind of almost sounds like a troll but it's just so funny and so ridiculous that I have to read this review on air. Yeah, I, I think that when you delve into the depths of the internet, sometimes it's hard to tell whether or not you're finding somebody who's being facetious or genuinely is just ridiculous. Well, So, I, Bob, I'm curious to hear this. I'll let you decide for yourself. This one-star review of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest comes from Pathetic Cinema. Username is Pathetic Cinema, and this person titles their review, McMurphy and the Chief, colon, A Fatal Misunderstanding. Wah, wah, wah. The Chief kills McMurphy because he thinks he's ignoring him. Shocking. Also, as an ornithologist, I study birds. All manner of birds, especially cuckoos. This movie didn't have a single cuckoo. (laughs) What a crushing disappointment. All I got instead was a bunch of lunatics lunatics running around and making silly noises at each other for two hours. With a title this misleading, the film should be scorned. I waited and waited to catch a glimpse of at least one cuckoo, but nothing happened. Instead, I witnessed some ridiculous scene in which McMurphy ignores a big chief and is killed with a pillow for doing so. Not a bird in sight. At the end, some Indian guy runs off into the woods... Still, I waited for a glimpse of at least one bird. Nothing. How can anyone call a bunch of maniacs drooling and farting entertainment? I'll never know. One star. (laughs) 
Bob, I'm I'm not gonna lie. I think we might have just gotten trolled. Oh no, I we 100 got trolled, but it was such a good troll job <laughs> that they deserve to be read on the air anyway. I mean, they did point out facts. Uh, McMurphy did ignore Chief at the end of the movie. <laughs> Chief did kill him, and there yeah. was not a single bird in the entire movie. Would not recommend if you're a bird lover. One out yeah. of ten. Yeah, I I agree, man. That, that's an insightful <laughs> essay on a movie that many have, you know, just falsely regarded as a classic of cinema. All right, Brad, let's get back into talking about this movie for real. And Brad, we were actually talking during the intermission about things that we didn't like about this movie. And we both landed on the fact that we disliked the performance of Dean R. Brooks, who is Dr. Spivy in this movie, the head of... Uh, the hospital. And I don't know if it's fair or not for us to dislike him because Mr. Brooks was not an actor. He was actually the head of the Oregon State Hospital where the movie was filmed. And because he was so open with the crew coming into the building and filming in different portions, they actually let him play a character in the movie. However, I will say that I think it was a huge mistake to let him play like one of the bigger parts in the movie because the man is just not a good actor. Yeah, I it, it helps me to hear that story to have a little more grace for him. But it it feels like whereas Nurse Ratched is like the face of the operation that you see day to day. It seems like the doctor that is over her that is observing all of the patient's care it feels like he should be the puppet master. He's the one pulling the strings. He's the one controlling what happens on the ward. But he kind of comes across as a bumbling, inept administrator that doesn't actually know how to care for people. And it was a really, really bad performance. And I just struggle to see them cast so many phenomenal actors in this movie and they it seems like they really took the time to craft roles for these actors that fit their personality and their acting style to include a a nobody in this movie it's just unfortunate yeah and the thing is like you know there's a there's a whole subgenre of movies where directors cast real people and non-actors in parts. And it, it works when you get the right person to do it. But I think it's just really clear that he is not the right person for this. And there are other doctor roles in this movie, in some of the scenes where they're having kind of a conference about what to do with McMurphy. And I'm like, give this guy one of those roles. Give him three lines. Don't make him be in five different scenes of the movie. Because I think it's pretty clear from the first time we see him, when he has his first little face-to-face -face with McMurphy... That Jack Nicholson, you can kind of tell, is going off script a little bit. He's like banging things on the desk, like killing a bug or something. And the, this poor guy has no idea how to ad lib or improv at all. And I think that it's kind of a struggle to get through that scene because they let it play out to its full extent. But the guy's just not an actor. And it really comes to a head at the end of the movie when Brad Dourif's character, Billy, kills himself. And... He, this guy pushes through the whole crowd that's like gawking at, at Billy's like open bleeding neck and his whole reaction is just, ah, oh, Billy. And I'm like, dude, you you got to muster up a little more emotion than that. Like, it's just it's a really bad 
glaringly bad performance in a movie full of good performances. Yeah, and and that's what makes it so bad is that there were so many phenomenal performances in this movie that his just stands out. And like you said, they had an opportunity to include him in the movie in a smaller role of saying one or two words about his, you know, fitness to be in the public life or back on the work crew. But no, they had to give him this role where he had a decent amount of lines in the movie. And and even the fact that he doesn't have a lot of lines, he had a large presence in the movie. Yeah. And he sh- just should he just shouldn't have. Well, before we move on, I, I do want to talk some more about one of the great towering performances of this movie, and that is Louise Fletcher. We talked about her quite a bit in the first half, but I think her story is really interesting. She was an actress that kind of came up with Jack Nicholson uh, in, in the New York theater scene in the 1950s when she was in her 20s. And in her 30s, she hadn't been getting a lot of jobs and she kind of quit acting to take care of her family. She had a couple kids and she gets cast in a movie that's being directed by Robert Altman in the early 70s. And based on the strength of that casting, she lands Cuckoo's Nest. And so she's 41 years old when uh, when they film this movie and release it. She wins the the Oscar for Best Actress. And then after that, she kind of gets typecast as a villain role because she does it so well in this movie. And she kind of has gone on record in saying, like, yeah, I kept taking those roles as as the villains in movies because I wanted to get paid and I wanted to keep working. And kind of famously, she took on the role of uh, a, a villain in the sequel to The Exorcist, Exorcist 2, which is now regarded as like one of the worst horror movies ever made is a terrible movie. But she actually turned down playing the role of Carrie's mother in Brian De Palma's movie, Carrie, which is a horror classic to take The Exorcist 2. But looking at her story, I think it's one of those classic examples of Hollywood not knowing what to do with actresses once they hit the age of 40, because she she gets catapulted onto the big stage. She wins an Oscar and then almost immediately Hollywood wants to you know relegate her to only playing the villain or like, you know, the evil stepmom, basically. And she's had steady work since this film. But I feel like because of, you know, the general lack of roles for women of this age, we were really kind of robbed of seeing Louise Fletcher in in more important or bigger roles as she aged. Honestly, though, Bob, I I'm not sure if I totally agree with you because I look at her performance and I think that her performance was so good because she lacked any emotion, because she didn't show almost anything with facial expressions. Uh, she did, she used her eyes in a way that they were a blank slate, always cold. And so in my mind, I think a lot of actors are considered to be the greatest actors of all time because they have range, because they have the ability to transform themselves into different things. So honestly, I've never watched an audition tape of her. I've never tried to cast her in a movie that I'm doing back in the 80s or late 70s. So I don't know what kind of a range that she had. And and maybe this is all she got. Maybe she was a one trick pony. And, you know, that's that's on her. And granted, she had a script and a director that was able to use her talent at remaining emotionless, you know, to get her an Oscar and to perform beautifully in this movie. But I wonder if those skills would translate to being a star as a different type of role. I hear what you're saying. I I don't know if I completely agree. Like you said, I don't know if she ever got the chance to prove that she had the range. But I also don't know if, if I would call her emotionless in this movie. Like, you're right. She does play really kind of stoic and stone faced. But I think the more the movie goes on and the more she starts to see McMurphy as a threat, 
I think she does a really brilliant thing with how she you kind of see the cracks in the facade a little bit. It's not like she's she's playing every scene exactly the same. I think as the power dynamic and the power struggle goes on, you really start to see those little nuances in her performance come out. And, you know, the director, Milos Forman, he also he, he said that he had always kind of imagined Nurse Ratched being like evil personified. But he said that when he started to see Louise Fletcher act this role out in the dailies, he said, I started to slowly realize that it would be much more powerful if as a character, she didn't know that she was evil, that she, as a matter of fact, believes that she's helping people. And I think Louise Fletcher does a really good job of kind of balancing those two things where she is really vindictive towards McMurphy and she is really psychologically manipulative. But at the same time, you, you never really know how much of it is being done on purpose and how much of it is being done because she thinks that's actually how you rehabilitate people. I thought she just did a fantastic job in this film. Well, and honestly, I what I said kind of earlier in the episode would bear fruit from what you just said in the fact that for a large part of the movie, you kind of wonder which way is better is kind of the chaotic fun-filled nature of Jack Nicholson going to rehabilitate these people or is the structured ordered life that Nurse Ratched is offering them going to rehabilitate them you know and by the end of it i think that you see especially with the final act of Billy Bobbitt you see that she doesn't care about actually rehabilitating she just wants to have power absolutely you know and so she definitely is a villain at the end of the movie but honestly, Bob, the, the more I look at it, you know, we, we've kind of framed this movie as a debate between McMurphy's style of rehabilitation and Nurse Ratched's style of rehabilitation. And we've talked about how the ending of the movie, you know, it, it's a struggle because when he runs, when Chief runs away after murdering McMurphy, it's kind of a crowd pleasing ending. But I'm curious, before we give our final scores... What do you think that the moral of the story is? Yeah, I think that I kind of hinted at this earlier, Brad. I'm not sure. I think it gets a little bit muddied because is this a movie about a power dynamic between two characters? I've seen, you know, I've seen some think pieces that say that this is a movie about countercultural clash and, and McMurphy represents young people and, and Nurse Ratched represents the more conservative older people in the 60s when the novel was written. I don't know if I'm going to go in on all that, but I think Roger Ebert, kind of picked up on the same thing that we were picking up on, Brad. He wrote a review in his book, Great Movies, where he says that One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is remembered as a comedy about the inmate revolt led by McMurphy and the fishing trip and the all-night orgy and his defiance of Nurse Ratched. But in fact, this is a movie about McMurphy's defeat. One can call it a moral victory and rejoice in the chief's escape, but that's a small consolation for McMurphy. And I think that that struggle is really what kind of muddies the movie for me. You know, when when uh, Roger Ebert first reviewed the movie, he didn't give it four stars. And I think it's because he also saw that the message of the movie wasn't entirely clear. I do think it asks a lot of good questions about do people deserve to have freedom or do they need structure? But that ending, it kind of muddies the whole picture up for me. And I don't really know what to make of it, Brad. Yeah, I totally agree, Bob. I I was I was totally on board for the message that this movie was was sending until the very end. And, and I really struggled with this triumphant moment of him ripping the water fountain 
from the ground, you know, in memory of McMurphy and how he tried to do that, you know, almost one of his first acts when he arrived on the ward. And he throws it through the window and he runs off just like McMurphy said he would. And even like the music in that moment is stirring and vindictive and it and it pushes you up on this swell of emotion as you as you enter into the credits and leave the movie theater. And I just kind of go, man, I don't know if that's what this whole story was about. And yet it seems like Milo Schwarman is telling me that that's what it's about because that's what he ends with. Well, I mean, you know, I think we get the picture, which is like. It's a tragedy like McMurphy loses like the the system has too much power and the system wins. And the ending, the very ending of what the chief does is like that final middle finger and that final like F you to authority. You know, you think you can pin us down, but you can't like the spirit of McMurphy lives on. And I get all that. But again, just like Ebert was saying and just like we were saying, what's the fallout? Like when those people wake up in the morning, it's going to be back to business as usual again. And so like. Yeah, maybe it's a small victory, but at the end of the day, Nurse Ratched still pretty much wins. And I don't think the movie did a good enough job of hammering home the sort of tragedy of that because they tried to give the audience such a crowd-pleasing ending. Yeah, and in the end, I think that's why, for me, this movie evoked so many feelings that I get when I watch, you know, 80s classics that are all about sticking it to the man and trying to trying to beat the system. And I think the the dissonance in this movie is that this movie is more honest about the fact that nine times out of ten, Goliath kills David. You know, there, there's yeah. a reason that the system has the power that it has. It's because it wins most of the time. And so whereas in the 80s, you have a lot more lighthearted movies where Ferris Bueller does stick it to the man. You know, he beats the principal. And, you know, you kind of have the same thing in movies like The Breakfast Club. But in this movie, McMurphy dies. You know, like you said, it's about this movie is about the defeat of McMurphy, but it's muddled with this message that, well, but he was kind of victorious. His spirit lives on. And you're like, yeah, but the dude's dead. Uh, I don't know if that's a victory. For sure. And I think it's time for us to give our final scores. You know, for such a long time, this movie was an, an undeniable 10 for me. And. On this watch through, again, Brad, I don't know if it's just because I've seen it before and I knew what was coming, but I think that some of the pacing issues really affected me this time. I think that the the bad performance of the doctor really affected me this time. And then not really having a clear message at the end of the movie, I think really kind of took this movie down a peg. And I think I'm going to give this movie an eight and a half out of ten. I think, you know, as the years go on and I watch it again, it's a great movie. It deserves to be listed in the top 100 of all time. I'll probably come around and bring that score up. But something about last night's viewing for me, it just didn't have the resonance that it used to have. And so I'm going to stick it an eight and a half for now. Bob, I am right there with you. I, as I was kind of debating what I wanted to give this movie, I was kind of flip flopping between an eight and a half and a nine. But I think that I am going to stick it at an eight and a half. And and it's a struggle because, like you said, I simultaneously can recognize that this is a very important movie and that it should be, like you said, top 50, top 100 of all time. And yet I'd pro- I'm just going to give it an eight and a half. I, I struggle with certain elements of this movie. And at some point I might give it a higher score. But for now, that's where I'm sticking. Well, there you have it. Those are our scores for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but we would love to hear from you. So please let us know what you think of this movie. Get on Facebook, 
Twitter or Instagram. You can find us at Film Whiskey. Let us know what you think. Or if you want to give us a call, let your voice be heard on the podcast. We will play your voicemail. If you want to call in, our number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that number is 216-800-5923. Next week, we'll be looking at the 35th anniversary of an all-time teen classic, The Breakfast Club. So join us next week for that. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time. Good transition oh that was that was the best segue i've ever heard dude like sermons you know yeah. political speeches anything no man you the gettysburg address has nothing on you my friend <laughs>